0: You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Ellen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. G'day, it's Stephen Robb from Shrink the Virus. Today we're going to... Pretend that we're in a cafe. It's been a while. It's been about a month since we've been in a cafe, Steve. It has. It's been a long time. (laughs) Use our imagination. (laughs) So we're gonna pretend we're in a cafe. Steve and I are having a cup of coffee, and we're talking about the psychology, the psychological theories, which might help explain how we're thinking, feeling, and behaving during the pandemic. Steve and I haven't prepared or shared or prepared, but we haven't shared our notes before this. So there might be a bit of a frisson of controversy (laughs) when we get into this.
1: Well, I think it's fair to say that we didn't want this one to sound too pre-prepared, like we are reading a whole lot of, um, you know, we pre-discussed. So we decided we'd take each other by surprise and wing it.
0: We'll probably end up in furious agreement or not. But Steve, we should get a time and date stamp. Okay, Sunday,
1: May the 3rd. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I've just done radiotherapy this morning.
0: Great um, show, by the way, great show. Under technical duress as well, sounds like. How are you going, man? I'm going well. I've got to tell you, I've been listening to uh, Hilltop Hoods. I know I've texted you the song, I'm Good, and uh, I've just, I have just I must have listened to this song about, seriously, about two dozen times in the last 24 hours. I'm a huge Hilltop Hood uh hood's fan <laughs> can't even get the name right <laughs> huge fan um mm-hmm. uh, no i listened to a lot of their music never seen them live but you know ever since uh cosby sweater remember that song from about 10 years ago yeah i do yeah uh, i got my cosby sweater that's great and uh 1955 is another song of theirs uh, yeah, yeah. get on I- Oh I'm good. it's just such a great song. So gotta, I've, I've, been, I've 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 actually I've been like a like a 20-year-old. I'm at the lights in my car and I'm actually got the music turned up really loud and I'm bopping along and like there's a big smile on my face.
1: Oh we'll have to figure out the psychology of that cuz you sent it to me and I have got to say when you sent it to me I initially thought oh he's obviously meant to send it to his son and uh, I did I sent it to him as well. <laughs> Jordan I
0: thought eh, take it or leave it. Really? <laughs> Have you actually? Do you listen to the lyrics? The lyrics are fantastic. Not that were eh, pretty basic and obvious. Oh, <laughs> uh, your your standards are way too high. What are you up to, man? What have you been doing?
1: Oh, look, you know, weekend. I, um, you know, I look, I guess, uh, you know, yesterday was really one of the days I got stir crazy because it was just so cold. I couldn't get out and exercise at all, which is just terrible for me. Um, you know, I kept trying going out for a walk and every time within about 10 steps it was raining. I don't know. So, look, I came, um, today was good though. I went on a nice walk after the radio show this morning. I'm feeling pretty good. A few things on my mind, I guess. You know, you know the main thing on my mind is I'm a little bit nervous that, about what's happening in Victoria. I'm a little bit nervous that Victoria is straying from the Australian advice and going a little Mm. bit rogue. And and our pollies are placing their own values above the expert consensus that's, you Uh. know, Australian government, especially with respect to schools. It seems to me every really good experts saying get back to school and victorian government sitting back there saying we're not putting anyone at risk and it sounds all value judgment rather than listening to what the experts say is the least risks the experts say getting back to school is the lower of the risks in the long run whereas victorians seems to be playing this sort of holier than thou Game and it's making me a little nervous because I, I want everyone to listen to the experts. I want the pollies, the politicians, to listen to the experts.
0: What about you? No, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, you you can't just listen to the experts when you agree with what they're saying. You either agree, you either implement the kind of uh, behaviours and policies that they say or. You don't. But if you don't, you've got to have really good reasons not to. You know, that, that's the bizarre thing. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm in 100% agreement with you about this. Hey, I've got to tell you about an interesting article I read about Sweden. You know how Sweden's kind of gone a bit rogue? Sweden. 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 Okay. And um, what they've done is they've uh, got social distancing, but they've still got bars open and things like that. But uh, apparently, I think it was uh, yesterday, uh there was supposed to be. Usually every year, there's a big festival in the park in one of the towns there. I think it's called Lund, and it's a fairly large town. And uh, the officials of this particular town were worried that people were going to get get together and party. It's usually university students, and you know what university students are like, Steve. You'll yeah, they used to act like a university student, and um, so what the what the local officials did was, there was there's a park where this usually happens. Is they just spread chicken manure all over the park to oh. fertilize it, <laughs> <laughs> and what a great idea! Because no one wants to go to the park, and they also get to fertilize the park at the same time. Brilliant idea! I
1: hate the smell of chicken manure with passion. Oh, that is just such a clever idea. We that should... a... Chicken mint, sprinkle chicken manure. <laughs> All over the
0: streets and cafes and bars of Melbourne. What a fantastic idea. Hey man, we better get into our show. And uh as, as as just before we get into it, I want people to remember what it was like at a cafe. You're gonna put the image in your mind. You've got a coffee in front of you, you've got people jostling around you, you got the shh of the coffee machine, that beautiful aroma of cakes and muffins and coffees. And just imagine two. Elderly psychiatrist sitting in the corner in furious argument. Independent Melbourne Radio Three Triple R. Now, Steve, I reckon psychological theories are a lot like economic theories. Ooh! No, one will never be right or predictive all the time. You know, you need a range of different theories to help explain people's behaviors like a smorgasbord which i learned today is spelt without an a in the board you need a smorgasbord of theories to help um understand the complexities of human behavior thinking and feeling and what psychological theories are really good at is they're not always brilliant at predicting like economics but they're really really good at explaining after the fact (laughs)
1: <laughs> Just hold on one second. Psychological theories are better than economic theories. Economic theories are some of the most notoriously worst theories in the world because no one understands all the inputs. But anyway, that's sort of a, an aside. Okay. But otherwise, I agree with you.
0: Yeah. So what we're saying is that some of the tools that we use to understand human thinking, feeling and behaviour, they're not precise and they won't work in every single circumstance, but they are useful in trying to understand uh, the complexities of what it is to be a human being. So, look, the first thing I want to talk about then is, you know, one of the, the most driving features of this pandemic is uncertainty. Yep. And human beings do not like uncertainty. You know, we, we've spent a lot of our lives trying to uh, quell uh, uncertainty. So, uh, for example, we have marriages uh, and lifelong partners in the, so as to make sure that we've got you know, a spouse to come home to and who, who we'll rear our children with and all those sorts of things. That, that's one way of decreasing the uncertainty there. I mean, there's lots of other fantastic benefits of being married. Don't get me wrong. What True. I'm saying is some people think about marriage in terms of love. All those... <laughs> well that's another theory (laughs) so that's just another theory um and it's a very very valid and one that i subscribe to myself we build houses to make sure that we've got places to come home to you know we like owning our own house if we can afford it obviously um because it's a sense of security we like that kind of stuff so we we go to great amounts of efforts to limit uncertainty in our lives and now to have this 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 Pandora's box really of uncertainty unleashed on us is really hard to tolerate.
1: I I agree with you entirely. I think it's the greatest uncertainty that certainly has occurred in my life. And I would would think almost, almost forever, because at the moment, not only are we going through a pandemic, but we're going through a pandemic in the middle of a social media revolution, which is really a revolution in the way humans communicate. And all of a sudden, ideas can spread like viruses. And so the uncertainty is magnified because we're hearing about it all over the world. We're hearing about every country in the world acting differently, responding differently, feeling differently. And, you know, and having said said that, there's some themes. But I agree. The uncertainty is huge.
0: And what we know that can, uh, uncertainty can do is it can generate anxiety. And we know that people who find uncertainty hard to tolerate are more prone to get more anxious when there is uncertainty. Yeah, And when people do that, obviously they can develop clinical disorders, but they can also have this grumbling background stress and feeling stressed and anxious. And that can be expressed a number of ways, obviously. But one of the w- ways that, that can be expressed is through this thing called emotion-focused coping. And that can be positive. You can do things like, um, talk about your feelings, you know, you can ventilate your feelings to, to somebody else. Um, you can use distraction techniques. Uh, but then there's also the negative ways of emotion coping, which is to dull your emotions with drugs and alcohol or to um, totally suppress them and deny them as well, which also isn't healthy. So, one of the things that uncertainty can do is to increase emotion focused coping in those people that get anxious. And you have to kind of think about which one you're doing, whether it's a positive strategy or a negative strategy. And as we've heard so often, the sales of alcohol have gone up. So you've really got to watch the amount of alcohol you're consuming if that's a way of quelling uncertainty. I'm not familiar with this
1: theory, but so and I don't really know, but I'm not convinced alcohol is always a bad way to deal with anxiety. Why is that negative all the time? Because let me let me put something else to you about that. Uh, I
0: didn't say all the time. I didn't say all the time. If it becomes a crutch that you become dependent on.
1: But let me put something else to you. Okay. Surely a lot of the alcohol is just because we're at home and we're feeling a bit flat and the alcohol is a social lubricant and we talk to our partners or our families a little bit better or it winds us down at the end of the day. Why do you think why do you think they say it's negative?
0: Um, I think if you're using it specifically to dull your emotions, negative emotions and that's what you require, I think that's probably a negative thing. If if the if
1: it, sorry imply that anti-anxiety um, drugs like antidepressants are negative too? Oh, mate. So too. <laughs> Sorry? Antidepressants, dull anxiety. So would yeah. you therefore call antidepressants a negative response? Or am I being overly picky on the positive negative?
0: I think it might be overly picky, but it's a good point. But are antidepressants habit forming the same way that alcohol is? Do antidepressants have the same negative consequences as alcohol abuse and alcohol no, misuse
1: clearly not there's as a drug they're far safer okay yeah. look I'll that one can i throw a psychological theory at you then that I've seen a lot of and you know obviously I work in a hospital setting so consultation liaison psychiatry I look after people with cancer currently but I've looked after many medical illnesses over the years that's my area of psychiatry um one that I've I constantly see is a grief reaction and this was obviously everyone knows Kubler-Ross denial anger bargaining sadness acceptance and I've seen this
0: did a- you see the Homer Simpson uh, the the Simpsons episode of that where Homer goes through the five stages in about <laughs> 10 seconds as the doctor tells us because he no, I won't. <laughs> and then he gets angry with the doctor. And then, wait, what if I'd done something different?
1: I know, Gold. I love it. But in reality, of course, the way these grief reactions work is de- denial is just for, you know, the listeners, denial's that feeling that it can't be true. Now, we've seen heaps of that. We've heard people saying, ah, oh, it's just the flu. It's an overreaction. It's a conspiracy. It's not real. So we've seen the denial. We've seen the anger spilling out left, right, and centre. Anger at our... Um, people in our community who aren't following the rules to the same degree that we are, anger at our politicians for making bad decisions. We've seen the bargaining. You know, look, how about if I drive my car to the um, beach and then go for a run? Um, No, you can't do You know, we've seen all the bargaining. We've seen the sadness. We've seen a lot of people feeling, um, you know, sad and finding this really hard going. And, of course, we've seen various stages of acceptance where, you know, the communities come together and everyone's pulling as one and, and. It's great, but just like real grief, it's bouncing, you know, because the bit where The Simpsons got it wrong is the idea that you go through these phases in an order and one leads to the other, leads to the other, and then it's finished. It doesn't work like that. It goes, you're like a pinball in a machine. You go, oh, I wake up a bit of denial. Oh, then I'm bargaining. Oh, then I lose my temper at someone who I normally love. Oh, then I have a cry. Oh, then I feel pretty good.
0: and things.
1: So I've seen a lot of
0: grief reactions around this. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I should point out to listeners, by the way, that you're a clinical and academic psychiatrist about, uh, um, and you work in, uh, in, in cancer care. Yep. I'm an academic psychiatrist. I swapped seeing patients for a brilliant writing career, which never <laughs> <laughs> Um If there are any publishers out there, I've got a fantastic novel and some short stories if you want to publish them. So um, the, look, some of the other theories too. That If the stories are so good, how come you're unpublished? Well, that's what I'm saying, because they're not that good, mate.
1: So mean. i think they're beautiful i've
0: seen your place uh, i know my players well yeah oh. Okay. chuck me one of your, another one of your ivory okay enemy. one of my ivory tower academic uh theories well this is this is something that i used to use in clinical practice which is um the an existential way of looking at things now existentialism i'd always thought was this sort of highfalutin kind of philosophical way of looking at the world but really it's just about It's about thinking about things that affect our existence on the planet or that, that keep us alive and so forth. And after Sartre, you know, Sartre is the poster boy for existentialism.
1: I think therefore I am.
0: <laughs> no, that's not Sartre. That's Descartes, Sunshine. <laughs> I got it. Right. <laughs> it's only about four hundred years difference, but that's okay. <laughs> French philosophers. He's a French philosopher. Yeah. Descartes is a French philosopher, like Sartre. So Sartre and De Beauvoir uh, talked a lot about what it meant to be alive, and following their theories. Um, psychiatrists took it up in in, in particular uh, a psychiatrist called Irvin yalom who's written a lot about this this kind of area and yalom said look there are four areas in existentialism that, that we think about a lot death meaninglessness isolation and freedom and by the way in this case freedom is not a good thing in his mind right. so or,
1: and well, all over it we are isolated at the moment we're socially exactly. isolated everyone 's thinking about their a death, the death of their loved ones the everyone 's wondering about the meaningfulness and meaninglessness of, of every that's just it 's got pandemic written all over it
0: doesn 't it and freedom was uh, you know normally we are quite freedom with a good thing and it normally is but uh, in the existential form it 's about if you have no limits and you could do anything, then anything could happen to you so you know where are the structures where are the boundaries in life and you Either get them given to you by your parents or society, but if they're not there, then what do you actually do? Where are the structures, the strictures that uh, help you negotiate your way through your life? And so confronting death, confronting what is my purpose, what is my meaning, confronting isolation and my choices, they're really, really big existential concerns. And, you know, the pandemic has really brought them front and center.
1: Hey, you know how I've got an anecdote for every occasion.
0: (laughs) No, you've got three.
1: (laughs) I've got a Yalom anecdote. So I ever went to the American Psychiatric Association conference. It was in New York. And uh, I didn't know much about Yalom because, you know, I'm not too much into the theories. I'm more of a clinician. And uh, I didn't know much about it, but I knew enough to know that he was um, famous. And so giving a keynote address, and so I thought, oh, I'll go along, um, not knowing, you know, hardly anything. And luckily on this occasion, I turned up early. I normally turn up late because when I got there, there was a queue. It was like a 5,000 seat auditorium. He was like a rock star. And I'd got there 15 minutes early. I only just got a seat. They had another auditorium and people listening over, you know, um, you know, TV, whatever, close circuit. And he was fascinating. And the thing that I loved about it was he was actually a cancer psychiatrist. And yeah. what he went on to describe how he developed it. He said he was working in cancer and he said he constantly saw people who were facing cancer. And of those who survived, a lot of them said it was one of the best experiences that they'd had in terms of making them reevaluate their values in the world It made them, you know, figure out who their friends were. It made them figure out what they really wanted to do with their lives. It made them go through this whole change. And he said, if only he could come up with a therapy that would do the same as cancer did, but without cancer and the risk of Mm -hmm. dying. And uh, he, and the, the bit that really cracked me up, he said, when I first came up with it, I was going to call it meaning therapy because everyone, you know, found meaning through having cancer. And he said, but, you know, I kept telling people and, you know, they just listened, meaning therapy, that sounds crap. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked around, I read a bit and decided existential psychotherapy sounded better. It was such a, tra- a real moment you know. I, yeah. That really because, you know, because it just sounds so highfalutin and the reality is, you know, he, he, Grounded this theory in real people, I loved it, and I do. I do see where you're coming from in this one.
0: Oh yeah, just one more thing about Yalom. If you want to read a great book, I mean, he is a great communicator. He he really can tease out psychological aspects in a very very beautiful and um, very approachable way. Read a read a book of his called Love's Executioner. It is just gold. Next theory from you, Stephen.
1: Okay. Um, okay what am i i'm going to go with one that i you'll probably know more about than me but um what about this sort of all the psychoanalytic theories and the developmental theories so i'm much more of a cognitive behavioral sort of person uh, I try, cognitive behavioral environment you know thoughts feelings but the psychoanalytic i got a little bit of training and i remember enough that, to, know <laughs> to be that
0: dangerous yeah
1: dangerous um you know i remember mean, a lot of it was about you know we relive the experiences in our adulthood that have formed in our childhood development yeah mental theories. And we transfer the emotions um, from our childhood onto those around us sometimes in our adulthood. Now, I don't know if I've got that right entirely, but let me tell you where I'm going with this. Sounds pretty good so far. When we're going through a period of uncertainty and we feel lost, we fall back into the patterns of our childhood and we start to put onto leaders and the um, the people making the decisions, the same attributes that we put onto our parents. So if we had a good relationship with our parents and we were trusting of our parents and they were reliable and they were good parents, we'd be a lot calmer and more relaxed. Whereas if we had a conflictual relationship with our parents, it would be childhood was more anxiety provoking. So similarly now, I'm seeing a lot of people who are really losing it and being a little bit irrational about our leaders, and um, and I'm wondering how much of those, how much of that is people reliving the relationship that they had with their parents when they were children? Have I gone totally off track? Does that make sense? Because I know you're more psychoanalytic than me. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, psychoanalytic. Yeah, yeah, no, you you fit the nail on the head, and I, you're absolutely right. And this is why, for example, this would explain why during war times and times of great crisis, leaders popularity ratings go up because traditionally the population is looking for a father figure most leaders have been um, male in in, in history um, so that's why you know even though uh they may not be doing a great job or their job is kind of under question people look to them as a father figure to take control and lead people to a better place. That's the psychodynamic psychoanalytic theory. Yeah, that's Yeah, and
1: I've felt it myself because, you know, it's fair to say that I'm I'm quite left-wing and uh, Scott Morrison, I didn't have much good feelings towards Scott Morrison at all prior to this, but I found myself in the first month of the crisis constantly saying to people, even when I didn't need to say it, constantly (laughs) saying, I'm really impressed with Scott Morrison. He's doing a really good job. I'm feeling quite safe in his hands he feels and i just started wondering a little bit about that one what about you man What's yes,
0: your- well that's exactly right you're feeling safe in his hands because you want to feel safe in his hands because you want to feel that somebody who has some bearing over your life is doing the right thing so it's important that that they have that image in your mind yeah yeah um, look, having said that i think one of the things that uh, uh, you know like you my views tend to be more left-wing um but i, I was really impressed with scott morrison because the messaging was pretty consistent um and same with the chief health officer that the you know apart from a few blips in here here and there the messaging was really consistent and this is one of the things Um, if you don't do well raises anxiety so we've seen in other countries (laughs) their leaders uh, having mixed messages saying oh this really virus it's you know it's not it's not that bad it's just like a bad case of flu and then a week later saying oh no it is really really bad and then saying oh look maybe not social distancing and giving mixed messages and when you do that that inherently raises the anxiety of people because again the uncertainty is just raised to another level so I think. You know that might help explain why, in some places, the anxiety levels are a bit higher.
1: I don't know, is that a psychological theory, or is that just a fact of life? If people give us, feed us bullshit, we get annoyed, and we and our bullshit meter goes off when people yeah themselves day in day out i
0: I think it's a psychological theory if you can say that that causes uh that raises people's anxiety i know you're anti-intellectual i know you like to think of yourself (laughs) as uh the working class hero that you don't like ivory towers that's why you try and pull me down the whole time but yeah i think it is a psychological theory i'm going to claim it as such next one from you my friend Don't take me, don't pull me down from my working class hero status.
1: I'm saying I I laud it. I think it's fantastic. Throw you one that is very much from my training, you know, from a very uh, cognitive behavioral sort of background um, is, and everyone will know this, it's the fight or fright. Mechanism reaction. And all this is is um, a theory that was developed a long time ago and is fairly well established that in response to fear, we have a physiological reaction. Our sympathetic nervous system discharges and it prepares us for action for either fright or flight. What? In this current um, environment, the flight is our isolation you know so we're running from the danger we're staying in our houses and we're keeping away and we're just doing everything we can to be out of it but we're still ready we're still um our sympathetic nervous system is firing we're ready for action we're ready to so that's why we're sort of sitting in our houses isolated from everything being quite safe but still feeling quite switched on and of course the fight is all the stuff we're doing to prepare like all you know the preparing our health system and stopping up our uh our, you know doing all the things that are preparing us to fight this virus and so i mean now look i know it's not sort of a highfalutin ivory tower sort of thing but it explains <laughs> the emotions we've got you know a lot of the fact that we are switched on the whole time and you know the other part the other um, arm to it as, as distinct from the sympathetic nervous system is the uh, autonomic is the Autonomic, the parasympathetic nervous system. It's all part of the autonomic nervous system. The parasympathetic bit calms us down, prepares us to eat, digest that sort of stuff. Um, so, and you, and I've felt my body very much, you know, under the control of the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic at various times.
0: Mm. As you said before, with the grief response, it's not just one or the other. They can often sort of seesaw a lot during um, the day. Have you heard that when you have a heightened autonomic or sympathetic stress that you get more cortisol released? Yeah, more.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, uh, it, the, the um, sort of the biology of the whole system is pretty well outlined. I don't remember it because I haven't studied it for 20 20- I- years. Yeah, it's all the um, cortisol stress hormones.
0: I also read somewhere recently that uh, oxytocin uh, is released as well. And oxytocin is the chemical which is released um, to uh, uh, produce or, or make, help women produce milk for a newborn baby and it's supposed to be like the love chemical you've heard of oxytocin yeah
1: yeah of course because you know you (laughs) want to get sprayed on people around you you can't buy it commercially and if you do it's fake
0: um so i'd heard somewhere that uh that uh raised sympathetic tone actually also increases oxytocin as well so i wish i could remember the article because now i'm sounding dumb because i can't but that might also uh have an effect on your emotions as well so you're stressed but you're also trying to uh, get closer to people around you as well.
1: Yeah, I'm hesitant. I'm always hesitant to discuss the neurochemistry because I get so caught. I- I'm terrible at remembering all the names and which so one. So am I.
0: So am I. And,
1: so, the other. So. and when you read it, it all makes great sense, but it doesn't actually, and it, I believe it, I actually believe it all, but it doesn't actually help you it I don't find that it gives me that much meaning. I, you know, it's not something that I can go around and walk down the street and go, oh, there goes a little bit of oxytocin through my brain. because I just found that person quite attractive. Or, you know, I go down the street and a saber tooth tiger runs at me and I go, whoa, there goes my cortisol level all oh, up through the roof. Um, I don't know, you know, but look, I agree. It's that beautiful interplay between the biological the psychological and the social that you know creates the myriad of
0: feelings and behaviours that we experience and do. Do we have any social theories? I mean, I haven't explored any social theories to help explain the pandemic. I guess few things we're seeing. Yeah, it might explain why people are feeling a sense of cohesion, why people are downloading the app. I think we're now at about was it three million people have downloaded the Corona Safe app. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, um, so this sense of social cohesion that we want to be together, we're a tribe, we're in this together. Uh, that kind of thing.
1: One of the social theories that's ca- that's gained enormous prominence in the last decade is the theories around isolation and how loneliness is a key driver yeah. of psychological distress. So lo- there's you know there's a couple of huge so theories that have really dominated psychiatry in the last couple of decades. One's the trauma theory that uh, you know a large part of nearly every psychiatric disorder has its origins in various forms of trauma, and another one is um the social isolation and loneliness drive depression and anxiety, mm. and also other illnesses to a lesser degree like say schizophrenia but they're very strong drivers and hence a lot of the movements around our community about trying to um you know decrease people's loneliness and increase social connectedness on the back of the idea that the big cities are more lonely than you would expect we're in close proximity but we're socially isolated
0: Isn't that interesting? Because, you know, in the 1800s, was it Durkheim? He was a, 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 I guess he was a social researcher. He talked about this, about social fragmentation being the the underlying a lot of social distress and anxiety and angst. And then we kind of moved through to this psychological, psychodynamic theory in the early 1900s with Freud. And then we moved into the biological theories in the 1950s. And whilst each of them explained something, I'm feeling much more a sense that the that the social constructs help better explain us as a, as a species because we, we are we are social uh, beings you know we exist within a framework the problem is that we're becoming more isolated more fragmented and uh, less community driven and that, that that's always and you and I have talked about this lots about how we need to get back to a sense of community
1: yeah Durk, Durkheim I don't remember much about Durkheim myself either but I read a bit about him when I was a student yeah. and I- been a massive fan of the social theories too. Yeah. Durkheim um, was, I think, you know, many people say he was one of the, you know, the fathers of sociology. And yeah. in particular, the, where his research really has stayed to this day is his theories about suicide, yeah. because he said suicide was a feature of essentially disconnected societies. Mm. And that the more people were disconnected in their society from each other, um, the higher the suicide rates. And he described various phenomena around that. But yeah, it's, it's all, uh, it's, it's, it's,
0: Fascinating stuff, my friend. Isn't it just fascinating? We've probably talked the ear off most of our listeners. Um, having you've just held up a timestamp for me. What was the timestamp?
1: <laughs> Long enough that we need to start winding up.
0: We do need to start winding up. I think what we can say is that this cafe that we've sat down in uh needs to stay open past five o'clock so that we can finish off the discussion. Because we've just scratched the surface of uh, some of the psychological theories that might help to explain some of the behaviours that we've been seeing.
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, know, sometimes you'll know I get a little bit cynical about all the theories that exist in psychiatry and psychology. And, uh, you know, because sometimes I just think we, at the end of the day, we come up with all these theories and they're really not not a lot to them a lot of the time and they don't explain nearly as much as we think they explain and sometimes i think that they're a little bit like bibles that you know they provide a reason for people to sit in the same room and support each other whether they're true or not and i sometimes think and i actually think the same with medications i might add half the time the medications not more than half the time they don't work half the time the psychological theories mean nothing but what they allow is they allow an excuse for people to sit in the same room and try and understand the weirdness that is life, and and the reason you know I'm I'm happy to talk about them now, despite the fact that I'm clearly no expert, as I've just illustrated, uh, is because you know in this time of great uncertainty, you know anything that gives us some sort of scaffolding mm-hmm. so that we can sit around and try and make meaning of this damn pandemic that's causing so much distress and destruction around the world, you know, anything that lets us do that is okay. So, uh, you know, even though I don't know that we make a lot of sense, it's nice that we all, I mean, it's a community, not just me and you, we all get mm. to try.
0: Yeah. What a beautiful word, scaffolding. And it allows us the opportunity to sit together in a room. And in fact, a lot of the dynamic, psychodynamic psychiatrists talk about that, that idea of having this play space play not as in sort of sitting down and playing scrabble but this idea of creating a space where two people can join together and play with ideas and uh try and connect with a corrective emotional experience exactly right mate you're a genius at this hey who would have thought maybe i should become a psychiatrist maybe i should (laughs) be a proper one who sits in a room with a couch and all that sort of (laughs) design. it would be fun we had better wind up You've been listening to us, Steve and Rob, talk about some of the psychological, biological and social theories that may help explain what's been going on for us during the pandemic.
1: It's probably worth pointing out if you or someone you care about are feeling overwhelmed with emotions like sadness or depression or anxiety, um, that uh, feel free to call any of the important helplines that we have in Australia, Lifeline, on 131114. Beyond Blue, who've got some special stuff around COVID, one three hundred two two four six three six, 224 636 or the Kids Helpline if you're worried about your kids, or if you're a kid yourself, one eight hundred five five one eight hundred, 551 800 and all of those three have um, websites as well if you want to Google either Lifeline, Beyond Blue, or the Kids Helpline. Rob, who do we need to thank?
0: Well, uh, just to by that, Steve, if you're not in Australia, there will be local help services, and we really encourage you to avail yourselves of them, obviously, as well. Now, who do we need to thank? We need to thank Grace, Mia, Elizabeth, Michael, and Beck from Triple R, who are all things wonderful in this world of radio and podcast production.
1: It's probably also worthwhile mentioning that we have social media. We've got shrink the virus pages on Instagram and on Facebook. Please uh, like us. Don't forget if you like the podcast too, to subscribe and rate us. And also we absolutely love feedback. Um, and we've got an email shrink the virus at gmail.com. Or of course you can put comments on the various social media um, pages. What about, what about, that Rob, is there
0: anything else? No, I was just thinking that we we love going through the uh, iTunes uh, ratings, seeing what people rated us. It's terrible, I know, but that's what we do. And some of us, uh, uh, and some of us even look to see what people have written. So please write us a review, good, bad, or otherwise, just write us a view so we know what we're doing and what we need to change.
1: And let me just m- mention one thing. Someone who we went to school with put a comment on and I've searched, I've re- put a comment on one of our social medias about a photo I put up of you and I when we were in um, year 12 together and uh, I can't for the life of me find the comment because I've been meaning to read it out and thank him. So, I'm, look, I'm really sorry that I can't find the comment. I think I must have <laughs> deleted it. That's you know. So, please comment and I will go ahead and delete them. No, but I might, we do appreciate all comments. So, please um, send us send any feedback or comments or any suggestions for things you'd like us to cover in the podcast.
0: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.